He is Jesus. And when we explore the depths of who He is, He will transform our minds. He will transform our lives by His power, His glory, His love, His beauty, His holiness, His strength, all that He is. He will transform us. And in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, where I want to direct your attention this morning, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul speaks of not only Jesus transforming us, but how He transforms us. So if you'll turn with me there to Romans chapter 12, we're going to look at the first two verses of Romans 12, and then we're going to look also at the verses preceding that in the 11th chapter of the book of Romans. He is the one who has the power to transform our lives. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome, which was the capital city of the Roman Empire at that time, he writes them and he says to them in writing to them, he gives in the first 11 chapters a comprehensive account of the gospel. He opens by painting the picture of who we are without Christ, which was, is a pathetic picture. And we really have no hope without the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he begins to go in detail in the ultimate lengths to which God has gone in giving His Son and what Jesus did for us on the cross to provide us with salvation, with deliverance from sin and with a deliverance to Himself. And then when you get to the 11th chapter, the latter part of it, in the 12th chapter, it's like Paul is standing on this ridge of this mountain that he's been climbing, of all that God has done to perfect and put together a salvation for us and His Son. And it's like he stops after the doctrine that he's given us and the analysis of God's work, and almost in losing his breath, he begins to reflect on what he's, God's done, and he begins to literally sort of explode in a praise of worship to God. And in so doing, he shows us that all doctrine needs to lead and should lead to worship. And all worship is founded and grounded in doctrine. And that's what he's done in those first 11 chapters is that he has taken the doctrines of salvation and the Word of God and what he, the Lord has done through His Son Jesus and providing and procuring salvation for us. And he says, man, when you look at this and when you take it in, you cannot help but begin to worship and praise the Lord. How do we do that? Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, my sermon outline is contained on the back page of your bulletin. I invite you, if you would, to follow along with me. Paul begins in verse 2. He, could, he says, after presenting yourselves, your bodies, to the Lord as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, then he says, don't be conformed to this world. And the idea of the word conform there is do not be in the habit of being fashioned by this world. He's sort of using the illustration of clay. And he's saying, don't present your mind, don't present who you are to this world to allow it to shape you and mold you into who you are. Don't be in the habit of saying that I get up every morning and I go into my life and I just let any and everything out there begin to 
shape me and mold me and my thinking and who I understand myself to be and God to be and the world to be, etc. Don't go into the world and say, okay, that's going to shape me, that's going to mold me, that's going to determine who I am. And I'm sort of presenting myself to the world for its shaping and its molding instead of presenting myself to the Lord to allow Him to shape and mold me. You see, either the world's going to be shaping and molding us or the Lord's going to be shaping and molding us. The two can't be shaping and molding at the same time because they're going to shape and mold in two opposite directions. So who am I presenting myself to? Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't let it be shaping and molding you like clay into its own image. Now, he says, don't let the world do that. He's not referring there to a geographic setting. The idea there is the age or era in which we live. And he's saying, don't let this age or this era shape you and mold you. Whatever the spiritual and moral characteristics of a particular age happen to be, every age, every era has certain philosophies and approaches to life that, if we're not careful, can shape us and mold us. And they're very subtle, and yet they're very powerful, and they're very effective. Some of those philosophies today from an intellectual, philosophical perspective, all truth is relative. If it works for you, then it's truth. If it doesn't work for you, then it's not truth. But all truth is relative. That's one of those shaping and molding philosophies that's prominent today. There's more ways to heaven and to God than Jesus. Jesus is not exclusive. It's up to you. And if it works for you, then that's great. And so Jesus is not exclusive or supreme, shaping and molding us. The early church struggled with that, particularly the church of Colossae, because they were, had a philosophy going through Colossae that there were all kinds of angels out there. And Jesus was one of the angels, but He wasn't the top angel. And so Jesus was not supreme. And so they were being shaped and molded by that kind of idea. And that's the reason Paul wrote the book of Colossians, to say that Jesus is exclusive and Jesus is supreme. And in our day and age, we're told so often that Jesus is not exclusive and Jesus is not supreme, that you can sort of choose and pick whoever you want as long as you are committed to it. That's a shaping and molding philosophy. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are really committed to what you believe. From an emotional perspective in our culture today, man, how much is out there to shape us and mold us into being angry all the time? If you are cool, calm, and collected, you're an oddball. If you're ticked off and angry all the time, then you're really with it. That's how you score points in our culture today is by being angry and resentful and bitter and all that kind of stuff and however you put it out there. And that's the common world today shaping us and molding us and how we express ourselves emotionally. Notice what he says here. Don't be conformed. Don't be shaped and molded by this era or by this age. But verse 2 be transformed. The idea there is to change into another form, to be changed inwardly into something entirely different than what we've been. Is to say, Lord, I'm going to allow you through your process to shape me and to mold me on the inside to become what you want me to become. Now, the word that's translated here transformed is the same Greek word that is used in Jesus' transfiguration over in the Gospels. And if you'll journey with me back to that, Jesus took three of the disciples and they went up on this mountain. And when they got up on this mountain, 
Jesus was transfigured. They looked upon him, and all of a sudden, he just began to glow almost to where they couldn't even look upon him with the brightness of the glory of God, and he was transfigured in that moment. Well, that's the same word that's being used here. And what he's saying here is allow the Lord, invite the Lord to transform us, to transfigure us into something entirely different than what we have been. Now, think about that. What God wants to do in our lives, if we will allow Him, is to take who we've been, what we've been, and to transfigure, transform that into something entirely different that is His idea. That's how He delivers us. That's how He transforms us. That's how He frees us from what we've been to what He's got for us. Whatever we have been in bondage to, His transformation process in us liberates us from that and takes us into something different. Now, it is a process, and often it is a difficult process. It's interesting to me that when Paul wrote this, he used the same word as the Gospels used for the transfiguration because when Jesus was transfigured, He went into the supreme brightness. And you see, in Scripture, brightness speaks of the presence of God. Darkness speaks of the presence of of Satan and the evil one, and the more he transforms us, the more we are liberated from the darkness and from the power of darkness that we would be in. So he says, I want you to be transformed by the presence of God and what he wants to accomplish in your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth says the same thing. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Notice what he's saying there. We all with an unveiled face. And the reference to the unveiled face is if you go back to the book of Exodus, when Moses looked upon the glory of God, he had to put a veil over his face because his face shone so much with the glory of God that folks couldn't stand to look upon him. We all with an unveiled face. God's, I mean, what he's saying there is he wants the glory just to shine all over the place. And we all with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image when, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul writing to the church at Corinth is saying... We have the opportunity and the call from God to look into the glory of God. And as we do, He transforms us so that our lives begin to reflect the glory of God. And He's saying we don't want the veil there anymore. It's not time to cover it up. Let the glory of God be reflected in you and through you as you look upon His glory. He says it happens degree upon degree, little by little, as He sets us free, as He heals us, as He liberates us, as He molds us and shapes us into an image like unto Him. And the Holy Spirit of God is the one who does that. Now, how does that happen? It happens as you and I explore and discover and experience the glory of the Lord Jesus. Notice verse 2. He says, this happens in the renewal of your mind. The renewal of your mind. It can't happen without renewal. And renewal starts with repentance. Repentance is when I 
agree with God about what needs to change in my life. The Lord, through His Word and the convicted ministry of the Holy Spirit, says to us, hey, this needs to change in your life. This is where I want to set you free. This is where you need to become more like me. And then I agree with Him. And I say, God, with Your help, I'm going to repent. With Your help and Your strength, I'm going to turn and I'm going to go in a new direction. But without repentance, there cannot be renewal. Renewal begins with repentance. The engine, if you will, of renewal is repentance. The renewal of your mind, a new and different way of thinking. How in the world do you and I know that God's got the power to do that? You know, that sounds great, but how do I know that God's got the power to do that? And why should I even let God do that? One simple answer. Because Jesus is resurrected. The resurrection tells us that Jesus has the power to renew and to change. The resurrection tells us that He has the power to deliver. The resurrection tells us that He has the power to set us free. The resurrection tells us that He has the power and the glory to do the renewing and the transforming because He already demonstrated His ability to renew and to transform. How do I know He's resurrected? Because the resurrection meets all the requirements of any historical event that happened. So because Jesus rose from the dead, He's got the power He has already demonstrated to renew and to transform. And so I am opening my life up to His resurrection power. Now, let's go up to Romans chapter 11, verse 33, a few verses up in the previous chapter. Because Paul here and now is going to talk about how we come in contact with that resurrection power. How that transformation takes place in our lives. And this is just where he just burst into this explanation of praise to God. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Now, what he's doing here is he's using a Hebrew device. And that is you see the same thing in closely paralleled ways. So let's work through this. First of all, he says the depth of the riches of Christ. The word there is the idea of inexhaustible wealth. It's it's the mystery of God. And Paul says, you know, God is so great that I don't care how deep you plunge into who he is, you just can continue to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. The exhaustible riches. Ephesians 3.8 speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, what are those riches? And, and I can't, don't have time to go into all of them, but let me hit a few of them, all right? First of all, it's His kindness and His tolerance and His patience. Have you ever thought about how patient God is with us? I don't know, gee, but I've had so many times I've stepped back in my life and I thought, you know, I really deserve for God to just take me out on that one. And He's patient. How many times we grow as believers so, so slow and how the Lord must get so exasperated 
When you look back in the, in the New Testament, it, it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are those times when it says that Jesus sighed. Now realize, every time it says that Jesus sighed, Jesus could have taken them out. I mean, they were one lightning bolt away from being smoke and ashes. And Jesus didn't call down a lightning bolt on them. He just sighed on the cross. That old hymn used to say he could have called 10,000 angels to his side, but what did he do on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. His patience and part of the riches of the Lord Jesus is how incredibly patient he is with us. His mercy. How many times do we deserve the judgment of God and we don't get it? Simply because he is extending incredible mercy in our direction. Next, he says, verse 33, his wisdom. His wisdom is his ability to select the best means for the attainment of the highest goal. To select the best means available to obtain his highest goal. Divine efficiency. I want you to think about this, the wisdom of God, because His wisdom is so different from our wisdom. He chose to take the weakness and vulnerability of the cross and use that to obtain an eternal salvation. How many of us would have chosen for the Son of God to be beaten, to be rejected, to give His blood, to be crucified, and what appeared to be total weakness, total vulnerability, total defeat. But in the wisdom of God, He knew that was the way to obtain an eternal salvation for us. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so when we look inside ourselves so often and we say, God, I am too weak, I am too vulnerable, I am too messed up, I don't have what it takes to get this job done, God is trying to say to us, you let me choose the means by which I will accomplish my will. And be ready to be surprised at who I will use and how I will use them to accomplish my will. But allow me to do that. He chooses that which is seemingly totally inefficient to accomplish and attain His highest goal. Next, he says, the knowledge of God. What is the knowledge of God? It's His insight into the very essence of things. It's God's ability to look into a human life and say, that's the problem. Everybody else may be defining it as something else, but that's the problem. That's the issue. He looks into people and he sees the goodness that they've got, what he's placed inside of them. He looks into a situation. It sort of functions like this. A really good surgeon has the ability in surgery to identify exactly what's going wrong in a body and to address it. It's that laser-like ability to look at the very essence of things. His knowledge is His way of looking into 
our lives, looking into situations, looking into groups of people and being able to analyze it, put his finger on it and say, okay, that's, this is what needs to happen. And that's why we have to ask him for his ability to help us get in tune with his knowledge. And that's the reason when we come to him in prayer, instead of just saying, God, here are all my problems, what I need to say to him in prayer is, Lord, would you show me this situation as you see it? Would you show me me as you see me? And then, Lord, would you show me and teach me and help me to discern your mind and your will in this? And notice verse 33, it says that his ways are unsearchable. What he thinks and he decides cannot be traced out. He sort of repeats the same idea by saying his ways are inscrutable. In other words, you can't track where he's going. Does that cause for us to just get totally frustrated and give up? Of course not. Because Paul is saying this in the context of celebrating it. Paul is saying, you know, when I step back from life, I realize that what God is doing and how God is doing it, I cannot get a clue. I cannot seem to figure it out. Because it's utterly beyond me. I want you to write this down. God's wisdom and ability does not stop at my place of comprehending it. God's wisdom and ability does not stop at my place of comprehending it. So often we take our ability to comprehend and to understand the work of God and the will of God and when we get to the end of our ability to comprehend Him, we think it's all over. In reality, it's just starting. And folks, you will not go long without serving the Lord where you're going to hit some times in your life and you're going to say, God, I don't understand why I'm at this place in life. I don't understand what's going on. I just, I'm just totally, Father, at a loss. But that doesn't mean God's not at work just because I can't comprehend what He's doing. It means that my wisdom has run out. Where do I go from there? Charles Spurgeon said so well, when I cannot trace his hand, I will trust his heart. When I cannot trace his hand, I will trust his heart. So what does he give us to enable us to be able to understand where he's going? Because we can't track it in our own mind. Again, Paul says this, celebrating it. Not frustrated, not overwhelmed, not backing away in life. He says it's celebrating. Why does he say that's celebrating? Because Paul knew... But number one, God gives us His Word to enable us to probe deeper who He is so that we can begin to discern. Secondly, He has given us, as we saw just a few moments ago, the presence of the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons when you trusted Jesus as your Savior that God placed the Holy Spirit of God inside of each of you is to teach us and to instruct us and to lead us and to guide us and say, Lord, I am incapable of this, and I'm incapable of understanding it, but I am trusting and I am acting for the, asking for the Holy Spirit to enable me to be empowered to understand what you're doing. He gives us time. 
The Lord doesn't work on our time schedule. Have you discovered that? He gives us time. And what we need to do is use the time that He gives us. Not to get impatient with the Lord, but rather to say, God, you have given me this time to know you better and then to come to know your will and your mind better. And He gives us worship. The opportunity, the call, the ability to worship Him because it is in the place of worship that we explore and experience the mystery of who He is. And as we do that, He begins to change us and transform us. I want you to do something with me this morning. I want you to close your eyes and bow your head. We begin the message with a video of many of the titles of Christ. And I want to read some of those And as I read them slowly, I want to invite you to ask the Lord to use one of those titles to speak to you where you are in life right now and to help you understand who He is in a deeper way and to experience His transforming power in that place in your life. God. Jesus, thank you that because you are risen, you have the power to change us and transform us. And you have the power to be all that we've just read and more. Lord, transform us as only you can. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you need to give your life to Jesus, choose to follow him and know Him, and love Him, and serve Him. That I want to invite you in just a moment as we sing to walk the aisle of this church and say, today, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus, and I want to follow Him, and I want to serve Him, and I want to belong to Him. He died for me. He rose again from the dead for me. And now I need to choose to follow Him and serve Him. If you're here today and you sense that God is calling you into the ministry, we invite you to come and say, Lord, I want to yield to that calling and serve you wherever and whenever you want. If you feel like the Lord is calling you to become a part of our church family, then we invite you to come. If there's any other public decision you need to make, feel free. And if you just need to come and kneel here at the front and pray as we sing, then we invite you to do so. Lord, have your way with us in these moments as we choose, Lord, to allow you to continue or to begin within us your process of delivering us and transforming us. In the powerful, precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Stand together and sing and come if you will.